0: Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 84 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Uh So, who are you, and
1: what do you do? Who am I? Well, my name is John, my young, and uh, I'm in a band called Dream Theater, and we have a new record out, "View from the Top of the World." That'll be coming out um, in like a week or so. At this point,
0: it's really exciting. And
1: uh, yeah, so we're we're gearing up for um, a tour to follow up the release. Uh, early next year, and um, you know, we've been laying low in our studio um, just riding away, and we we came up with a really amazing album um, that, you know, we think is really good. So we we hope that others will feel the same.
0: It's a great album. I had a chance to check it out, and it is. It's a great album. There's it's amazing to me how genres get created and fans are loyal and or fans are fleeting. Um, you've really managed to not just create or, or at least really accentuate a, a genre of music, but people really stick with you. And I was wondering if you ever have conversations about how amazing the fans are. I mean, they really are fans that are, are through it through thick and thin over decades
1: no you're right they're they're the best fans that anyone could ask for you know um i did an interview with um someone i believe i believe in belgium it was and she was a fan from the very first album so um to have people still with us to have taken this journey with us you know, for, for 30 some odd years. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate compliment and ultimate, um, it's the ultimate. What more could a band ask for, you know? So thank you to, to everyone that, that makes our, uh, our lives possible and, uh, and it enables us to continue on. So, um, you know, there's lots more to do um, we're really excited about the new record. And, um, you know, during um, this period of time, I've, I've gotten to do a lot of interesting things um, gear-wise and, and getting a bit into, like, product development. And um, I have a, a signature base. It's called a Bongo Six String, but it's been signaturized. Uh, customized to my liking. Um, It's put out by Ernie Ball Music Man. And it's been out for a year. It's doing well. And um, for like an anniversary, we're we're at the one-year anniversary point of the release. So we think about doing a new color soon. So I have um, a really cool color picked out. And um, other things in development, I have a cool uh, distortion pedal. Um, it's going to be called the JM Double Drive, and um, I think it's a real unique, uh, unique piece of gear um, that I'm looking forward to using live. And I also have um, a bass combo that um, is currently underway, um, and in both both pieces, the pedal and, and the amp, are going to be uh, made by Ashdown, and um, they're, they're a company that I've kind of grown close with. Um, used their, um, their amps on uh, the Train of Thought album. And, uh, and then I brought them back on the Distance Over Time album. And um, so now we're uh, developing pedals and amps. So hopefully, um, if everything goes according to plan, they'll be out uh, sometime next year.
0: Were those like pandemic projects or things that were happening? And do you worry that once things, pardon the pound but amp up in terms of the album and the tour that you might be busy? Well,
1: certainly the, um, the downtime that we had enabled me to um, start, uh, start these uh, ideas. Um, for sure. I mean, if I was busy on tour or somewhere, I, it probably wouldn't have happened. Right. You know, because because I would been busy. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely um, a quiet time to just kind of sit back, uh, time of, of reflection, and kind of just you know, if there was any like you know just having the time off like that was, was unusual. Um, you know, the whole world just kind of shutting down, you know, it kind of made me rethink a couple of things. And, um, so that's, that's where things have been at for me for the past year and a half.
0: So a lot, I mean, you, you're known to be someone who loves to practice was this a case of a lot more practice? Did you keep to your regular schedule? Did you find that there were moments where, just by the nature of what was happening in the world, that you weren't practicing the way you like? What was what was it like for you? Well, the reason why
1: um, I practice is because playing bass is what I do, and and the, the nature of what I do is such that. You know, it's not, like, it's not like I'm a computer and you input it once and it's there, you know, sitting on a folder on a hard drive somewhere. You know, you know, going back and learning songs off a, you know, a record that we haven't played in like 10 years, uh, in a lot of ways, it's like picking up an album for the first time and just kind of reacquainting myself. You know, I, I don't remember everything. You know, so there's only so much you can kind of remember or, or recall anyway, where you feel like you haven't memorized at a given point in time. So um, so, so, for me, it's, it's just maintaining what it is that I need to do um, just from like a a memorization standpoint and a physical standpoint but both which are um, demanding and that basically takes time you know it's uh, it's definitely a job you know, <laughs> because you definitely have you have to apply yourself or it ain't gonna happen you're not gonna just show up and be able to do it without having to put the work in so um, so that's So that's what goes on behind the scenes anyway, at least in my mind.
0: So we're of similar age, and I find this project of interviewing bass players every month for No Treble has been a really fun adventure for me because not just the genres I'm crossing, not just the uh, stature of, of some of these musicians whose story I don't think was told in the way in which I want to hear it. So I'm <laughs> trying to get that story out of them. But one of the things that became abundantly clear when I was speaking to players who are older, I'm not saying you're older, John, but there is this stamina pressure of the crazy things that I did in my youth that I now have to end or are expected of me to play. And when I think of a band like Dream Theater, which we were talking offline, and we'll get, maybe get into it, but I've been very close to for for almost since the beginning, or at least since the beginning with James LeBrie with Images and Words, how is it for you from a stamina perspective? Do you find yourself changing even beyond practicing? Is, is there physical stuff you're doing to keep that dexterity strength of the hands? I mean, that stuff that, re- that really does require a physical sense of work and the stuff you're doing... As a, a different dynamic or layer of complexity to that,
1: right? Well, you know, you you kind of train and and do what you have to do to kind of generate the results that you want. So, um, so I focus on, like for instance, like getting ready. For like this upcoming tour and stuff, you know, I, uh, I'm in a different mode because I'm at home, and I'm dealing with, you know, balancing um, practice time versus family time, and you know, maintaining that balance, which is a lot harder when, when you're at home. A lot more uh, going on here. So my my focus is to kind of just get a grasp of the material, the songs, and know what should be happening. Um, maybe certain things I'm not playing up to like album album speed or album level or touring level, but I know what the puzzle piece is and what should be happening stuff. So the first part is just kind of just knowing how everything goes and having that kind of overview. And then, um, when I feel like that is together or at least 80% together. Um, I'll start focusing on certain things that are giving me problems. You know, it could be real kind of difficult. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, when, when matching, um, some of the riffs and stuff, uh, the drum plays, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, pretty intricate picked, um, you know, using, utilizing a pick on a guitar and stuff. So when, when I'm kind of emulating that with fingers on the bass and something, it could be kind of a challenge. So those are the things that are probably the things that I isolate once I'm familiar with the song. Um from a memorization standpoint. And then I'll kind of just do like little drills to kind of bring these little spots up to speed. Do you,
0: and call, then, um, do you ever call them and be like, I can't, like, what are you doing over here? Or is that not what happens?
1: No, I mean, it's part of the challenge. I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, makes a better player makes me rethink my part. Sometimes I'll just figure out how to play, um, maybe playing unison line isn't the best way to approach, maybe even more kind of stepping outside of the shape a little bit and playing more like a groove might be the part too. So, um, yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's all great. And and then when it comes to touring, I don't have to worry about that. So then touring is actually when I spend the most intense period, um, behind the instrument because there's no distractions. You know, it's just get a good night's rest on the bus or at the hotel, wake up, go to the venue, start warming up. And then, you know, just kind of preparing for the show. And then, so that's when I'm really, really, I feel like I'm really dialed in the most when we're on tour. And that's when I really feel like I excel. Um, Only because of amount of time I can put in and all the uh, things that kind of distract me at home uh, get put on hold, yep. at least somewhat. Yep. And, um, yeah, so, so, so for touring for me is, is a great time um, from an instrument standpoint because, because I'm playing a lot. I'm warming up and between warming up and soundcheck and live show and and doing that consistently three, four nights a week. Um, that's when I really feel like I'm on. Uh, that's really when I feel like I'm like at my best.
0: And Billy Sheen was telling me a story that he, he knows that he's in that zone when he feels like he can crack coconuts with his hands once he's on tour enough and playing enough. It's like just this, it's like this overbearing sense of, of, of physicality that that he gets. I also, I don't know if it's a joke or if it's true, but, but someone said that you warm down after like you practice so much, you warm down. Is that a joke or is that like a true thing?
1: Well, um, I don't know. I guess, (laughs) I guess I was playing after a show in the dressing room and, and, uh, you know, and then it became, uh, mythology. (laughs) I don't know it, it got mentioned somewhere and then got taken out of context I mean I used to you know it's it's kind of like I mean what are you supposed to do it's you know it's it's what you do I mean you know you, you play a show and you know I have no problems going back and, and learning something you know but uh you know but after show, there's there's usually like a meet and greet and people to meet and things like that. Um, but I think that's more something that got taken way way out of context. But um, but maybe I will play after show. I mean,
0: <laughs> I think it's good mythology. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It's like that's the thing. I'm curious when. I mean, clearly in the short period of time we've had in this conversation, it's very apparent to me that you are. Very, very dedicated, not just to the instrument, but to your own artistic abilities, your own capabilities, and really thinking, where is it going versus where have I been? And I'm wondering, I know you started off by playing violin when you were five. You switched the bass, apparently, when you were around 15. But when did that level of dedication and passion for the instrument really ignite? When was that?
1: Uh, that was early on when it when it first started, I mean me and Champa had like an unwritten rule that if we saw each other at a party somewhere that we knew that we got our six hours in. Otherwise <laughs> otherwise, if you didn't see the other guy, you knew you knew what was going on. And and if you saw each other then then it was understood. That was because you put the time in. You know, I mean we were just, you know, very disciplined, you know, and took every opportunity um, to, uh, to get better and to want to get better. And, you know, it was, I mean, I remember just grabbing uh, my base, putting it in a case and getting on my like 10 speed bike and, and riding over to John's house just to kind of get together and practice work on something. And, uh, yeah, those was the early days. We were just really driven, you know, t- to the point where, um, looking back, it just, I don't know, it just felt very real to us, you know, that there was something, uh, there's something there, you know, we felt really, really, um,
0: dedicated. When you get into a place like Berkeley School of Music do you realize that there are other people as dedicated or is it one of those things where you and John are looking at each other going, we are outworking these people hands down because people don't necessarily go into music or even instrument playing with that type of rigor, there's a, a desire, there's a passion and there's a skill level, but it just seems that even here, she talk about six hours and no one's going, no one wants to be seen in public for the shame of then knowing that you didn't put in your six hours. That's a, that's a next level of intensity and dedication. Yeah.
1: I mean, we just, you know, it seemed like a really, really good idea to, um, <laughs> pursue and you know the bands that we were listening to um like maiden and rush um you know yes sabbath you know it was just uh there, there was definitely a connection to um what was going on musically um too you know um I mean, for us, it was, you know, stuff that was uh, written in the 70s and 80s. That, you know, that that was our childhood, you know, that that was the music we we grew up listening to and idolizing, And, And, uh, you know, the one thing led to another, you know, and and it's still going.
0: Still going. Talk a bit about... You know, so you're 15 years old and you switched to bass. Why did you switch to bass? What did you see that intrigued you about the instrument? Who introduced you to it? How are you exposed to the instrument?
1: Well, I have a good friend of mine, uh, a guy named Frank, and he grew up two houses down from me, and he needed a bass player. And, uh, you know, he encouraged me to play. You know, he said, you know, you should be able to figure it out. You know, it has four strings, like the violin. So, um, so, so I opted for it, you know, because, you know, what could be better than hanging out with your friends and jamming? You know, (laughs) I, I tried, I brought my violin down one time, but it wasn't really loud enough. (laughs) Um, and then one thing led to another and I went to a flea market and bought a bass and then started buying an ampere or a cabinet from this person you know and started wiring things up and then and then just you know started jamming and uh, and then just became the best idea you know it it was uh, had a lot of respect for um, the musicians that I was listening to and and I was just like, man, it would be, it would be the ultimate to be able to do this, you know, you know, and, and being, and, and watching, uh, and seeing that, that it was possible. You they know, see these bands, these musicians playing and well, this is what they do. I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is what I want to do. So, uh, so it was that kind of extreme thought becoming, becoming a reality and uh and i'm living it to this day
0: so so frank tells you to try the bass you you try it you go to the flea market you pick up a bass at what point do you are you self-aware enough to realize there's a level of acumen here or real passion for it and and is it based off of the fact that you're playing songs by artists that you like is it based off of the fact like what is creating that inspiration where's the inspiration coming from for you um
1: you know what? When you're young you have tons of energy, you know. I guess it's uh you know when you when you're in your teenage years even venturing into like your early twenties, I mean um I mean I see it in my children too, you know. You really start kind of putting things together and kind of uh soul searching, you know uh purpose finding, trying to find the right purpose um to to apply yourself and uh, and growing up, you know, in, in in the suburbs, you know, it was it was just a kind of a natural thing to just kind of just hang out in your bedroom, listen to records and and, and just kind of play along. And it was a great way to kind of pass time, you know?
0: What did your parents think?
1: <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting question because um, at first, you know, it was, it was just something that I did. And but then, when it, when it got to like a level of seriousness, or um, it kind of uh, was viewed differently, and, and I don't know, I, I think I was probably way more serious than they, than my parents knew. You know, and um, so maybe kind of pursuing um, a path that that is more kind of um, not specialized in something that they would think would be, you know, the proper path for me or whatever. You know, it, it was sort of, um, I don't know a bit of, uh, uncertainty, you know,
0: like, were they terrified? But, like but, they're going to go off and <laughs> drugs rock and roll the whole, like, were they worried or were they just really cool supportive parents?
1: I mean, for the most part, they were supportive that they put up with the noise, <laughs> um, you know, uh, cause you definitely make a lot of noise. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm actually really thankful thinking back, you know, thinking back on, uh, what, um, you know, I'd, I'd go two doors down, jam away, and, you know, we'd make a lot of noise between us, the drum set and all the amps and stuff, but, um, for the most part, we grew up in a neighborhood where that was happening, you know, there, there were a lot of bands forming, uh, where uh, where I grew up and and for the most part parents were supportive and uh, just thankful, you know, to to have the upbringing that I did, you know, and to have known the people that I knew. Were
0: and you, uh, were you good in school?
1: Yeah, I was average. <laughs> you know? No, I wasn't. I I wasn't. I wasn't super. I didn't get really super good grades. No.
0: Because usually the parents back off if you're doing well in school, right? It's like, okay, you can do the bass thing because you're doing well in school.
1: Right, yeah. Well, that I mean, that's what it was too, you know. Um, if your grades sort of suffered, then they start questioning, well, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> it's all this music. Um, but, um no, that's a good question that you ask. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know. It, it's sort of like, you know when when you're just onto something and you're pursuing something, it's sort of like you just kind of uh, you kinda just you know just buying stuff and going for it. And you're not really worried about anything else, you know.
0: Are you uh, are you really are, are you knowing where you're at in terms of being the player that you are? Meaning, if if I were to apply to Berkeley. I would be, I wonder if I'll get in. Or were you at the time already at a place where you were like, not only am I getting in, I'm going to do really well there. Not from an ego perspective, but just being able to look around at your peers and say, I'm at a different level. Or or was it not there? Were you apprehensive to apply to that school? And then I'm also curious about what it was like to be there. Was there, was it more about what happened with you and John in the jam room and meeting you know, Mike Portnoy there? Or was it like really paramount in terms of what you learned from the education standpoint?
1: Um, Well, we were there just a year. It was more of a meeting ground for musicians the first year and just getting to know everyone, you know, the the different musicians we met, different styles of music, and kind of just taking everything in. That probably had, like, the, the biggest kind of influence on me. Um, you know, you know. I, I like certain records, certain bands, and then um, but you'd run into all different uh, styles of music and all sorts of. You get turned on to all different sorts of music, and um, you know, so there's a lot of different styles of music, you know, and uh, that's what's cool about it. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty vast, and um, and you you know I got to meet some really interesting people, um, really talented people, um, and you know I mean that's a whole other discipline. You know, I mean Berkeley being a jazz school, you know, it's lots of great information and resources and things to apply to yourself. I mean, it was a great place. You know, I loved being there. Um, it's one of my, uh, you know, when, when I think about it, it was just a really cool period of my life being there. Um, and being, you know, being in Boston, and it was just cool. I love being there. But we, only, but we only spent the year there. Yeah. You know, we were supposed to go back. But then it was like, hey, you know, rather than go back, why don't we just really just kind of find a place to practice and, and kind of just uh, see what happens, you know? So that's what we did, you know, to the dismay of, of um, you know, of it being the proper path. You know, I don't, I don't think your parents want to hear that you're not going to college anymore, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, it's, is what we did. We followed through with it and, uh, and, um, it was interesting, you know, just looking back and, and just kind of seeing everything happen and every, how everything unfolded and what we did, you know, um. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing.
0: It's, it's pretty amazing for sure, yeah. I want to uh, so we talked a bit about when you first started playing and bands and that world, but I'm curious about other bass players. You mentioned Iron Maiden, Rush, Yes, Black Sabbath, so you and I are are definitely cut from the same cloth in terms of music we were listening to at a particular moment in time which is going to have massive ramifications on who you become and what inspires you. Uh, but I'm curious also about the players. I mean, all of those bands have bass in a very unique way we could we could discuss how Maiden has uh, Steve Harris who's playing the rhythm but also to a certain degree leading and 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 same could be said for Rush yes has components of it that are almost bass driven Black Sabbath maybe more of the bottom and carrying it through were there particular players that that you found one inspiring and then I'm also curious about the ones that you would look to more in terms of your style. Now, I know you've mentioned players like John Entwistle, which was a huge one for me from, from the who, and I've heard you occasionally mention Jacko. Uh, But I'm curious about the players that really made you rethink how I can play and how I can be, because your role in the band to me is very reminiscent of what you see in Rush or Maiden, or yes, where, you're holding groove and you're bringing it, but you're also leading riffs and songs. It, it's a very unique way to play the bass that, again, we've seen, but, but it's still unique.
1: Right. <clears throat> well, you know, it's its its own thing. You know, every band um, is its own thing. You know, you listen to the records, you know, the, the only way to kind of, really kind of get it is to just apply selflessness to the music, figure things out. And, um, and that is a whole process and a whole world. So, I mean, for me, it, it's about kind of knowing what you like and staying in close, uh, contact with that not forgetting it don't forget why you started playing um, because the more you the more you listen to stuff the more you pick up on other things um, and just because an album was created in the 70s doesn't mean that it's you know time to move on you know it you could listen to you know if it's a great song great album you listen to it now, it might affect you differently. You might notice something different about it. So, so in that sense, you know, music is timeless You know, it doesn't really matter when it was created. I mean, it may have a certain timestamp in terms of sounds and style, but, you know, music is music, you know, it's, um, it's, it's stuff that it's organized sound, you know, and, uh, it's organized sound that kind of does something when you listen to it. you know, it um, energizes you or brings you somewhere or takes you somewhere. So um, So a lot of times idea creation for me isn't sitting down being like, okay, now it's time to think of an idea. Uh, it doesn't work that way for me. It's always when I'm working on something else or applying myself something else musically that all of a sudden like I'll be distracted to do something else and then I'll be like, okay, well, that sounds cool. I'm going to record it. So <clears throat> it's sort of like... Um, a result of doing something else, like coming up with an idea, is is a result of doing something other than actually thinking about it. And an idea happens um, while you're working on something, you know, and and in the band context, when when we're working on parts and things like that, um, it's cool when somebody will play something and it'll be a result of just what we're doing. then somebody will be like, Oh, let's use that. Let's put that in there. So, um, I don't know. So it's a fruit of meditation, right? Ideas in a way, you know, it, it happens when you're meditating or concentrating on something else.
0: The, um, the album Images and Words came out in 92, and before we were recording, I was telling you that we have a bit of history. I mean, I've met you a handful of times over the years, but I was around when the label and management was looking for the new singer who became James Labrie. It was the choice, but James was someone we had known up here for a while, and a, a buddy of mine was managing some other bands, and we got called like, yeah, you have any singers? And he was one of the first people that... We were like, you should check out this guy from this band, Winter Rose. He's pretty amazing. So it's been an amazing journey for me to see the band evolve and without even hearing images and words, but then hearing that album, I mean, that really changed my world. It was, it was just, it was almost like somebody was in my brain and knew the mental stew of what I like for music and had put it all together with an incredible singer. But what's unique about it is, If you think about all things rational, which music is never rational, I mean, it came out at a time when grunge was really, really moving and hopping. What we've known as hard rock was kind of seen as being either on the ropes or on the mat or maybe even fully, completely knocked out at that point. And yet this album comes out and I mean, it does, you know, to, to quote the infamous Steve Jobs line, it puts a dent in the world or at least in the hearts and minds of people who really like progressive and heavy music at a time when there was none of it. Uh, you, 92, you come out with Awake, another album that to me was was very transformative and, and was a perfect move along to it. And just, I, I felt the energy of this thing really, really growing and growing. And I'm wondering have you ever reflected on just that period of time only because, wow, music was really not, the tailwinds were not in blowing in your direction at that point?
1: Well, <clears throat> I mean, it's not, a, it's not a perfect science. You know, it, it's sort of a combination of everything. You know, Derek Oliver bringing in David Prater who was having um, his own level of success at Top 40 Radio. He had a certain sound yeah. that, that, uh, that he kind of brought to Top 40 Radio at that time with the band that he was working with called Firehouse. So um, he kind of, you know, when I listened to what he did, uh, I'd only heard, you know, just personal like four track recordings or, um, or like boombox recordings of the songs that we've done. Um, but, you know, he was brought in as a producer and, and we focused on uh, Metropolis and Take Your Time. And uh, upon listening back to what he did, it was pretty apparent, you know, what a producer did. You know, okay, I get it. You know, a producer is someone that has an artistic vision on how things should sound and project a certain type of um, flavor or whatever, you know. Uh, and, and he definitely had his own way of bringing things to life, you know. Um, and uh, so that, you know, it, you know, I I mean, the combination of that and and the material that we were doing, um, just the timing of everything, um, you know, it's, you know, I I don't think he can dispute any of all that. It was all part of the mix, you know, and it's all part of what happened.
0: The video, too. I mean, again... I've I've heard the band half-jokingly talk about how the amateurness of of the video, but at the same time, it really resonated. It felt real to people, and and along with the music. Again, at a time when videos were important, but it seemed like the image was so different than what was wanted or being asked for of the market, again, it felt just counter where the world was going, and at the same time, exactly aligned with what people... It's almost like there was a hunger for a certain type, and, and Dream Theater happened to land... It's, it's an amazing story. Right. Yeah,
1: well there's definitely something to be said for that. You know, there's there's a lot more that goes on in the world than what the media can cover. <laughs> you know. The media will focus on something, but but clearly there's a there's this you know, you don't wanna to zone in on one thing. I mean, there's a much bigger kind of picture to the whole thing, you know,
0: L- let's move forward a little and, bit. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. He, yeah, let's, go <laughs> ahead. let's, let's jump a little bit to today. Cause I want to be respectful of your time. Um, it, it's clear to me when I was reading some of the material getting ready for the launch of a view from the top of the world, that things were a little bit different. So one issue is we have covid and borders closed and James is back home up here. I'm in Montreal, but he's up here in Canada. But the band makes a decision to do this d this 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 DTHQ, like the Dream Feeder HQ, which is something again I've seen from the business standpoint Metallica do and other bands do where they take a plot of land and build it out, studio, rehearsals, able to create multimedia stuff whatever it might be. I'm wondering is it Was it was it a function of the pandemic that made you realize to do this? Or had that been a plan all along to build your own camp where you could do this stuff? What was that whole process and conversation about?
1: Well, during, um, I mean, this has been something that has been ongoing. It didn't just have, you know, it wasn't just thought of last minute. Um, you know, around the distance over time period, of like uh, writing that album and kind of gearing up for the tour and during, during that whole period of time, um, you know, we were still looking and then and then things started uh, opportunities started presenting themselves and so then one thing led to another. So uh, you know, we we lucked out in a way because. They kind of came together exactly when we needed things to come together as far as having a place to record. And um, we've always needed something like that, you know.
0: <clears throat>
1: I mean, we have, we have the gear. It was just a matter of finding a home, a second home, that, that made sense on, on different levels, you know. Um, so... The, the goal was to have a place where, that we could call our home, leave our gear, prepare for tours, um, just just a place where we could work, you know, a consistent, a consistent place where we could work. So that was uh, the motivation to, to wanting a place. And it couldn't have happened at a better time.
0: So uh, is it the kind of place that you head over to, to practice? I'm not necessarily asking where it physically is. I don't know if that's known or not known. So you could feel free to let me know or or not let me know. But is it a place where you go to just hang out and practice by yourself? Or is it really band stuff when the whole band is together?
1: It's for band stuff. Or, you know, if I have to do like... um, if I have a separate recording obligation or project to do for someone, um, I'll schedule time with with uh, with Jimmy T, um, and, and it's a place where we can get little things done too, um, as long as uh, it works out scheduling-wise. So, is this a great place um, for the band to do what a band does? write and record and prepare for tours and, and and a place where we could also individually use it for other, other, other projects, um, and recording needs. So, So,
0: so was it really the, was this album, this, centralized there in terms of writing, recording, overdubs, post-production building, was everything, was this the first album that everything was done in this one space or was it not the case just because of COVID or how, how, did it work for this album?
1: Yes. Everything was done there right, you know, from scratch. Um, apart from the mixing. Um, but yeah, all the writing and, and recording of basic tracks, overdubbing, um, was done there you know every every square inch of the place is put to use um you know all the rooms are wired and uh it just works out you know wasn't designed that way but uh we designed it to uh to fit our needs and And it's great. It's just great to have. Very, very thankful for it.
0: Yeah, the, the, Those places always feel like if you like gear and like playing, it's like it just feels like a Disneyland. If you do if you do well, it's a place where you can go to really just play with stuff. So it's great. I also want to talk a little bit about uh, drummers. You're playing with someone who is one of my favorite drummers long before they were in Dream Theater. I remember seeing Mike Mangini back uh, in Extreme and then. Earlier than that, uh, Mike Portnoy, too, is playing, just seeing him live in a club on images and words, just he, he blew me away. Bass players and drummers sometimes lock and step in terms of how they're perceived out in the media in the real world. But I'm wondering how you think about playing in relation to being with a player like Mike Mangini or even a Mike Portnoy, the two Mikes what's that like for you? Does it, is, is it that inspiring? Is it, is it overly challenging where you're trying to find that space between what people like John Petrucci are doing and people like a Mike Mangini is doing? How do you, how do you work in the relationship with the drummer?
1: Well, I mean, they both enter at different points in my life. You know, Mike, um, was there from the beginning of, uh, in you know, the early days, you know. Um I was a lot younger then and you know, we we clicked and you know, we, we did a lot of cool stuff. A lot of commute, a lot of uh, cool um records were made. Um and then you know Janie has been in the band for a long time too, now over ten years. Um I mean it, it was more of him coming and sort of, I see it as like the midpoint in my life. And, you know, they're both, they're both incredible drummers. They have their, uh, ideal. Um, they both have their ideals and things that they want to do. Um, and so it's all, it's all just music, you know, it's, it's really up to the listener to kind of listen and, and discern what, what's different and stuff, you know but but um, they're, but they're both great and and they both uh, you know are great to learn from and to look back so you know, and and learn.
0: Last question. I know you love playing golf, so I'm hoping that you've had plenty of time to play golf in the crazy world we have, but I'm also curious beyond the base and golf, is there reading? Are you a big reader, movies, TVs, what type of media slash art do you like to to also take in? Uh, I
1: like, um, I like documentaries. Uh, They, uh, you know, that shed light on something that uh, that I didn't know about, or um, it could be about like mountain climbing. Um, but there's actually a really cool, cool one uh, that I that I like watch on, on long plane, plane rides every now and then called Meru. Um, it's called the shark's fin, uh, which is this incredible challenge. Um, that I don't know. I just find find fascinating and inspiring. Um, and other documentaries, uh, a really cool one that was kind of inspiring as well was uh, one one called Inner Worlds and Outer Worlds. Mm. And uh, the premise and thinking of that was uh, touched upon um, just human spirituality and the pace of technology and how if one grows faster than the other, it could spell trouble and be a lot of problems. So I thought that was interesting. I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, the other thing is just, you know, just focus on being healthy, you know, just doing, uh, trying to learn more about <clears throat> how my body works, what keeps my body happy, things that I could do. Lifestyle changes, the way I eat, um, all those things have profound effects on how I play because it has a profound effect on how I feel. So I think if I could turn back the clock to back when I was young again, I'd probably want to kind of turn that up a little bit, you know, and have more kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like medical knowledge or. Or more or study the uh, human anatomy, you know, study just how the body works, how it ticks, and because it's pretty fascinating how your body how your body takes care of itself and how it is such a resilient um, it, it's such a resilient life form, you know, so it because those things have really big impacts when you're playing as well. so I, I think it actually goes hand in hand with being a musician to want to know those things.
0: Another, so, um, a- another great documentary, if you've seen Helvetica, which is all about the font Helvetica, it's fantastic. So if you get a chance, Gary Hustwood, I think is the uh, filmmaker. It's great. Great little director. How do you, how, how do you spell it? Helvetica, like the font H E L V E T I C A. Great documentary about the font Helvetica. It's fascinating, like really inspiring, very creative. Love it. It's great.
1: Okay, I'll have to to check it out. Yeah, Let me
0: me know what you think. So, yeah, Dream Theater's got a brand new album out. It's called The View from the Top of the World. Uh, Incredible playing, beautiful songs if you like Dream Theater. And even if you don't, there's so many different genres mixed in and that make this album just move in in dynamic and beautifully melodic ways. John, I can't thank you enough for your time, and, and thank you so much for telling your story. I've been really looking forward to hearing you tell your story.
1: Oh, Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um.